Well, good morning. <clears throat> Wait, great to see you. What a beautiful day out there. It feels like summer is finally coming, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, boo, yeah. Like, let's pray for rain, you know? Uh, oh, not that week, not that week. Uh, but, uh, man, just so many good things going on. The Children's Hunger Fund thing happened. I don't know if Pat uh, mentioned this because I wasn't listening, but she, uh, it's my third time through, you know? And, uh, but, uh, you know, we have over, I guess, 220 volunteers already for VBS uh, signed up already. And so let's go and get it. You know that class we started last week, for, it's called Pursuing God One-on-One on Wednesday nights. Uh, t- over 270 people uh, signed up for that. And uh, we had a tremendous time just talking about what does it look like to pursue God one-on-one in our, in our personal time. And we're off to a great start with that. So just some great things happening. Uh, if this is your very first time here, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and uh, we're so glad you're here. Inside your weekend program is a white message note sheet we use every week during our time of teaching. So if you're, you're brand new, you won't know that. You want to pull that out. That'll help you follow along as we kick off uh, the, the, today's teaching. So let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we're just so thankful to be here. We're thankful for your presence, thankful for worship. We're thankful for this chance to enter into your presence. And, and now we seek you together as a church, God, as we do every week. We just pray this will be a time of encounter when you will come by your spirit. You'll speak to us by name according to our situation in life. And you'll speak your truth. You'll speak your life. That we will hear it, respond, to be changed, transformed, and go out to live different lives. And so, Lord, we just acknowledge that this is a supernatural time we're entering into right now. A time of teaching of your word. And we pray that you would come and be our teacher and that you would speak to us as a church and individually. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, I was still living down in Vista, uh, North San Diego County, where we'd, we'd come from. And I, I went to the, the mailbox that day and I, I got a jury summons. Right? See, you've all had it happen. And, uh, and this would happen from time to time. And of course, typically it'd be the, the Superior Court jury summons was right there in Vista, very close to where we live actually. And, and so the church that we were a part of, it didn't really, at that point where we served, it, it didn't kind of support that, like, financially. And so uh, typically what happened is I get jury summons. I just write a letter saying it would be a financial hardship, and they excuse me, and I'd, I'd go on my life. And this particular time I, I tried that, and it turned out that this wasn't for the superior court. This was for the, the federal court in San Diego, about, you know, about an hour away. And it turned out um, they were not so uh, easygoing. And, um, and so I called them, and they said, you know, we don't really care what your situation is, you know, and it's like, yeah, but, you know, they don't really, oh, that doesn't matter. And, you know, but it's a really big show. It doesn't really matter. Just uh, be here. You know, and please, you know, they finally, like, reduced it from two-week service to one-week service. They said, you've got to be here. And so uh, I, I woke up that Monday morning. Time, came time for my week, and I, I drove on down there. And I'm thinking, there's just no way. You know, I woke up early because you had to beat the traffic and drive all the way to San Diego and get there early. And, and I'm thinking, there's no way they're going to choose me because you, you know how jury duty works, right? Like, you've been on jury duty. You, you go and you sit there all day. They never choose you. And, uh, and then especially, like, if you're a pastor, there's no way they're going to choose you because you believe in things like right and wrong, you know? So, um, and so you know they're just not going to be chosen. And so, so I go in, sit in this huge room with a ton of people, and think, here we go again. And, and, uh, and, and right away, the very first group of people that are chosen, your number, it's like, I'm one of the guys. And I'm just saying, I can't believe this. And so I, I go into the, the actual, you know, courtroom, and the prosecuting attorney's there, and the defense attorneys are there, and they begin to interview the candidates. I'm thinking, there's no way in the world that they're ever going to choose me being a pastor. And so I'm watching this process, and the more, longer it goes on, the more fascinating it's getting. Because before uh, I was going to ministry, I was really, I was checking out law school. I was really going to go to law school. So uh, I thought, uh, you know, uh, th- this was getting, this, this would be kind of fun to sit on this trial, but there's no way they're going to choose me because I'm a pastor. And so it comes my turn, and they still haven't filled their, their quota, and so they 
they start interviewing me. So you're a pastor. I'm like, yes, you know, I'm determined to tell the truth, even though it means it will disqualify me. And so, um, <laughs> you're a pastor. Yes, I am. And, and so it's at a fairly large church. Yes, very large church. And, and so do you have any uh, law enforcement people in your church that you're friends with? Well, yes, got a lot of law enforcement people. Have any judges in your church? Yeah, yes, we have judges. And like, I'm just thinking there's no way. And it gets to the end and, and they choose me. And I, I get to be a juror. And so I go back into the jury room, and now we got to pick a foreman. And they, they pick me as the foreman. <laughs> and, and so now, now I'm a foreman on a federal drug running case. <laughs> Today we're continuing our series. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a series in the Gospel of John. For those of you brand new, it's called Revealed. It's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers, perhaps his best friend, the disciple John. And uh, today we come to the very first uh, chapter of John in the first 18 verses. And uh, in this chapter, in these first 18 verses, John is going to make this incredible claim that there was a time and a place where the God who created all time and space entered into the creation. Creator became part of creation in order to rescue us, save us, give us a new life. And, uh, and, and these first 18 verses the uh, scholars call these the prologue. And, uh, and they're really, in many ways, sort of an introduction and a summary of all that John's gonna teach in this gospel. So in many ways, it's like a trial. You know, I started with a story about me going to San Diego, and it was a fascinating experience, by the way. A trial ended up as, uh, lasting three days. I'm not gonna tell you all the details, because I'll save that for another day, another story. But um, it was a fascinating experience, and... Um, I remember that day, you know, they, we, we go back in the room, and, and I end up getting selected to be the, the, uh, the foreman, and this was just like, what a challenge this is going to be, because, you know, it's like you got 12 disparate people, and you got to kind of mold together a consensus, and it's a great leadership thing, and I'm excited, and then they march us in to the, the, the room, you know, where the, the courtroom, and you get up in those chairs, you've all seen Law and Order, you know how this works, and, and so you get up in those chairs, and it's like, wow, this is really happening right here, right now, I mean, this is America, you know, it's like, we are... Like, this is important stuff. And, and so you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, the first thing that happens is that the, the, both, the, both attorneys, the prosecuting attorney and defense attorney, they come in and they give their opening statements. And these opening statements, what they're doing is they're both introducing you to the case, but they're giving you the conclusion of the case as well. They're saying, here's what happened, and here's what I'm going to show, and here's what I'm going to prove. And they're kind of summarizing everything that's going to come after well, these first 18 verses in the prologue, that's exactly what John's doing. It's his opening statement for his case that he's going to be making in the Gospel of John. And he's both introducing the story of Jesus, but summarizing the story of everything he's going to prove through the life and teaching of Jesus in this Gospel. And so what we're going to do today is a couple things. First of all, we're going to start off, and we're going to, we're going to walk through the passage uh, together, first 18 verses. Secondly, we're going to say, uh, what are the three big claims that John is making in this passage about Jesus? And then finally talk about the practical implications of these claims for our life. So if you've got your note sheet there, you have a section called the prologue, John's opening statement, and, and ask you to uh, take out your Bibles and turn to John 1, and we will begin walking through these first 18 verses in his opening statement. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, through, and he was 
uh, with God in the beginning. And so John says, let's go back to the beginning of time. You can go back as far as you want to make a difference. When you get there, go back further. Doesn't make any difference. Go back as far as you want. That when you get there, there is this person. And his name is the Word. And uh, he's an interesting person because he is, uh, he's with God, um, so he's separate from God, and yet he is God. He's the same as God. And, and, and so he was there in the beginning. And then he goes on in verse 3 and says that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So both a positive way of stating it and a negative. Positive, through him, all things were made. Negative, without him, nothing was made that has been made. He says, this person, this word, who is with God in the beginning, separate from God, and yet somehow the same as God, that he is the creator of the cosmos, that he is, is the creator of all things, from the largest, uh, from the sun, moon, stars, and, and largest galaxies, far-flung galaxies, at the macro level of, of the cosmos, to the electrons, protons, uh, neutrons, subatomic particles, quarks, that make up all of uh, existence, that from the micro level to the macro level, he is the creator of all things, this word who is with God, separate from God and yet the same as God, that he is the creator of all things. There's nothing that's created that he didn't create. And then he goes on, and he says, in him was life, he was the source of life for the universe, and that life was the light of men. It was the source of our understanding of all that's good and right and true. And that light continues to shine in the darkness, even in this day, and the darkness has never understood it. Uh, in the margin, it says never overcome it, uh, alternate translation. And so this light, uh, this word who is in him was life, and it's the light of the world, um, it shines to this day. The world has never understood it. We are the dark planet. We have always been at odds with this, this light ever since uh, the first fall in creation. So we've been at odds with the light. We've never really understood all that's good and right and true. And we've always been at odds ever since that fall. Um, and, we've, and we've even tried to extinguish that light. But we've never been able to put it out. Okay. And so he's, he's given us this introductory paragraph. In the beginning, as far back as you want to go, there's this word, separate from God, yet the same as God, creator of all things, source of all life, the sort of all light and truth and what is good, and yet we've been at odds. He's made the opening statement. Now he wants to do a little sidebar, and uh, he wants to introduce one of his star witnesses for this trial, for this case. And uh, the star witness is a man named John, John the Baptist. And before Jesus came, uh, God sent a prophet to Israel to help prepare the way. His name was John the Baptist. And we will see his witness, his testimony to Jesus in the coming weeks. Uh, next week in chapter 1, we'll see it in chapter 3 down the road. But right now, in this opening statement, in this courtroom, John is just introducing one of his star witnesses. And so he says, uh, there was a man, verse 6, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness. Notice courtroom language. He came as a witness to testify, see, uh, concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So he's beginning to give us a hint of where he's going. This word that was with God and that was God, that was the light of the world, that he is about to be coming into the world. It's kind of letting us know 
where the story is going. So verse 10, he was in the world, this word, and though the world was made through him, he was the creator, the world didn't recognize him, and even more to the point, didn't want to recognize him, as we'll see. In verse 11, he came that, to that which was his own. The creator came to his own creation. But his own, even his own people, the nation of Israel, did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, a kind of a minority report, most people didn't, but there was a minority who did, to those who received him, minority, they, to those who believed in his name. Now catch that. Key word in the Gospel of John is the word believe. What John means by believe is to receive. You see how that goes together? To those who received him, to those who believed in his name. That's what he means. To believe is to receive, to receive is to believe. What he's saying is that there was a time and place where the God who created all time and space came into the world as the creator of the world, and by and large, the world did not receive their own creator. They didn't follow their own creator. They didn't let God be God. They said, no, we want to run our own lives. But there are a few that believed in him. And to believe doesn't just mean, yeah, yeah I guess, I guess so. I guess I believe in him. It means that he is God. He is a creator. I, he's my God. I, I follow him, as we'll see throughout the book. So to believe is not like a superficial thing. It's a, it's a recognition of who he is and surrendering our life to his leadership as God and creator. And so he says, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They, they entered into a whole new relationship with God. They received the DNA of God, the life of God, back into their lives. We'll see more about this in John 3, where Jesus talks about being born again. There's a, a fundamental change, a supernatural change that happens when a person comes to follow this word. And in verse 13, he clarifies this. He says, these are children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor of a husband's will. In other words, I'm, talk, I'm not talking natural birth here. I'm talking supernatural birth, born of God. Now he gets back to his main storyline. Remember in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Okay, and, and so that's the, the start of the story. Now in verse 14, he gets back to the main storyline and says, okay, and so the Word became flesh. So here it is. There was a time and a place when the Word who created the universe became a part of that universe. And he and he made his dwelling amongst us. He came to live in us. And we have seen his glory. Of course, whenever God shows up in the Old Testament, there's always glory. And it says, John says, hey, we were eyewitnesses. I was there. We have seen his glory. He was amazing. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, well, we were there. We saw when the word became flesh. He says, I was there. I was eyewitnesses. I, I touched him. We talked. We, it was a real deal. And he said, he was amazing. And he said, if I only have two words to describe him, here they are. Number word, word number one is the word grace. Just an incredible love that we couldn't even begin to understand. And the second word is truth. We finally got the truth about who God is, who life is, how we're to live. He says two words to describe. If I only had two words, I'd say grace and truth. That's who he was. He was amazing. And now he goes back to his star witness to John to kind of back up his case, John the Baptist. He says, John testifies concerning him. He cries out and says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So John the Baptist, one of the things he said, of course, John's dead by this point, 
but, but his testimony rings on. And one of the things John has said is that, hey, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Uh, John was Jesus' cousin, and John was born first, so he was older. John also was called to start his ministry before Jesus. And so in that culture, you would think that John the Baptist would be greater. Uh, the one who comes first would be greater. Um, but, but, but John actually said, he said, no, no, the one who comes after me um, surpasses me as greater because he was before me. So he's kind of affirming what John told us in the verse one, that the word was always there. In the beginning was the word. And he's affirming the preexistence of Jesus. And so then he go, uh, John the apostle goes on, verse 16, from, his, from the fullness of his grace, a picture uh, like a, a cup that's just, or a bucket that's overflowing, like, like you know, from the fullness, just, he's just full of grace. Jesus was just full of grace. And it was just kind of wherever, wherever he went, just like grace just kind of spilled over his life. And so from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Now literally, it's not what it says. It's sort of a bad translation, actually, but what it literally says is from the fullness of his grace, we have received grace against grace, or grace instead of grace, or grace for grace, or grace upon grace. It's like from the fullness of his grace, he just graced us. It was like, like one wave of grace uh, after another crashing against the shore of our life. Just grace upon grace upon grace. You know, around him, he was, just, he was just full of grace and just spilled over in our lives. And we, just, we were just graced by his presence. And verse 18, he says, no one, uh, well, verse 17, for the law came through Moses, the Old Testament. God revealed himself through Moses, the law of Moses. He showed us who he is and what he expects of us and all. And it was a great gift, and yet we weren't able to live up to that law. We weren't able to be those kinds of people. We didn't have the power, and so it ultimately condemned us. And so the law was given through Moses, but, but grace and truth, this grace of God and this truth of who he was, it came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. It's kind of axiomatic in Scripture that no one's ever seen God in his fullness, but God the one and only, talking about Jesus, who is at the Father's side. Remember, he's, he was with the Father. He has made him known. And so, so we've always wondered what God's really like, and now Jesus has come, and he's the one who's made him known. <coughs> no one's ever seen God, but you've seen Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. That God has become one of us. See? So that's the passage. So it's his opening statement to this whole letter. Let me introduce the story of Jesus. Let me uh, begin to introduce some of my star witnesses. Let me kind of explain what I'm going to show and prove through the teaching of Jesus. Because everything that John's laying out here in this introduction is really a summary of what Jesus said about himself. And so at the beginning, he's just giving you the big picture before we dive in. Let me tell you who Jesus is, introduce him, but let me summarize his claims and what we learned about him. And now as we go into the letter, we'll be kind of fleshing this out and unpacking it and showing where I get all this from, this introduction from. Okay, does that make sense? You with me? Okay, so that's the passage. Now, there in your note sheet, uh, we have a section that's called the Prologue Principles, Three Big Claims. And what I want to do is, uh, first, is take some time to unpack the three huge claims that, that John is making about Jesus in this passage, and then we'll come back and talk about how those uh, impact our life. Number one, the first, uh, the first claim he makes is that God has come. Uh, God's come, that God has come to planet Earth. 
Now, I don't know if you realize how distinctive this is, but this really sets Christianity apart from any other uh, religion in the history of the world. No one else claims this. This is truly unique. That there was a time and a place when the God who created all time and space entered into time and space. The creator became a part of the creation. That's a unique claim. And it's a huge claim, and it's a crazy claim. It is so far out there. It's like we get, we get so used to it. We're like, oh, yeah, incarnation. Heard that story. Okay, next point. Like, are you kidding me? Uh, that the God, the, are you, the infinite becomes finite. The, bound, the one without boundaries takes on the limitations of human boundaries. Like, how does that happen? And yet this is the claim. And, and uh, a lot of you have heard of uh, C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite authors. And, of course, he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, but he wrote all kinds of other things. And one of my favorite books is a book called Mere Christianity. It's sort of a book where he explains the basic core what Christians believe and what Christianity is about. And in there he put this quote, and I put it for you there for you to have it in your note sheet. <clears throat> he says, uh, then, came, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says that he's, he's always existed. We'll see that in John, by the way. He says that he's come to judge the world at the end of time. We'll see that in John. Now, let us get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians, so we're talking about like, the, like in India, Hindus, that sort of thing, um, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God and there'd be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, he could not mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that's ever been uttered by human lips. Are, are you with me on this? It's like when someone walks into town and says, hey, I just want to know I'm God. You know, it's like we got an issue, right? It's like you are either a Looney Tune crazy man, you know, you know or, or you're on some kind of, you know, you're, you're going to go on TV and raise a lot of money, or, uh, or, or maybe you're the real deal. But there's not a lot of options here. Not a lot of options. You don't really have the option of, oh, he was a brilliant teacher. Really? Brilliant teachers don't think they're God, right? There's really not a lot of options here, and yet this is a central core claim of Christianity, that there was a time and a place when the creator of the cosmos became a, a part of time and space. That's, that's the claim. Um, now, of course, this raises huge questions, doesn't it? Like, wait, but how is that possible? That the God who created all things could become so like... Like, who's running the world when that's going on? You know, it's like, 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 how does that work? Or what about, hey, I thought there was just one God. Now we got multiple gods? Like, what's going on here? You know, it's like, it raises questions. And so John wants to unpack this for us, and he does so very carefully. He chooses words carefully. And so we're going to unpack this in John 1, 1. All right, so take your Bibles, <coughs> and let's look at John 1, 1, and let's unpack and see what he says. <coughs> Uh, first of all, he says, in the beginning. He starts this book, in the beginning. Now, a lot of us here are Christ followers. You've been coming to church a lot of you a long time. When you hear the words, in the beginning, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, yeah, Genesis, right? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, what? 
God created heaven's spirit. That's how the story starts. And so when John starts his story, he picks up on that. Uh, he's writing for, to people who are familiar with the Old Testament. He, he knows where their mind's going to go. It's not, this is not just happenstance. He just well, how do you start a book? Well, I don't know. It starts in the beginning. Okay, in the beginning. You know, so it's not how it works. He's very cognizant of what he's doing. He, he knows that, that there's this famous start to the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so he starts his story the same way. He says, in the beginning. You think you know what happened in the beginning. But there's more to the story of what happened in the beginning. Let me tell you the rest of the story. And he says, in the beginning, ooh, there was someone there that you're not expecting. In the beginning, there was a person. And, and his name was the Word. Now, this choice of words, very interesting choice of words. In, in the Greek language, the word for word that he uses here is the word logos. And you might want to write this down. The word logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. So what it really says is in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. It's a very famous uh, word for his Greek, Greek readers. Because for about 600 years before the time of Christ, um, Greek philosophers have been using this word to describe the force that holds the world together. Kind of the rational force behind the order of the universe. So the Greek philosophers, they would look at the world and they'd see its incredible size, its, uh, its complexity, its beauty and the order. And they'd say, man, there's something behind this. This thing didn't just happen. And, and so they didn't think of it as like a person, but they thought of it as some kind of a force or a rational thought or something that was holding this world together. And they called that force the logos. And, and so if you're, you're a Greek listener, when he starts off and says, in the beginning uh, was the logos, you're, you're like, okay, yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. But it was also a famous word for his Jewish readers. Because in the Old Testament, the word of God is a very powerful concept, right? In, in, the, in, in this, this concept of the word. Um, in fact, um, in, in Old Testament times, and also in between the Testaments in the 400 years, um, the word word becomes uh, often personified. Um, like, do you know what that means? Like, like when you take a quality and you make it as if it's a person. Um, for example, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is often personified. If you read through the book of Proverbs, it'll say wisdom holds a banquet or wisdom invites people to the banquet. Or like in Proverbs chapter 8, it says that the creation of the world, wisdom is speaking. Proverbs chapter 8 says, wisdom says, hey, when God was creating the world, I, wisdom, was by his side as a craftsman daily. So you kind of, see, wisdom becomes personified as if a person. Well, the same thing had happened in Jewish literature and in the Old Testament where the word became personified where um, uh, uh, the word would accomplish things, uh, take on the characteristics of a, of a person. And so, for example, I put some examples there from the Old Testament. But it goes like this, um, Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So the word of the Lord, it, it creates. The word of the Lord restores. The word of the Lord heals. The word of the Lord reveals. It's like this separate entity almost from God it's often portrayed that way. Psalm 107, the next one, he sent forth his word and he healed them. Notice how he didn't just say he healed them. I sent forth his word and the word healed him. Uh, Psalm, the next one, Isaiah 55, so is my word that comes out of my mouth. 
It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So God sends out his word. It's almost like this agent, this person that goes out and it accomplishes what he wants and then comes back and says, I got that done, you see? And so uh, this, this personification, Jeremiah 1.4, the next one. Now the word of the Lord came to me, common statement of the prophets. They didn't just say God spoke to me, said the word of the Lord, it came to me, you see? And so, so for a Jewish mindset, this concept of the word of the Lord that, that creates, that heals, that restores, that reveals, is, and it's often personified, they sort of had that concept as well. And so when they hear, in the beginning was the word, they would think, oh, yeah, okay, we're, we're familiar with that. But what John does is he takes, whether you're a Greek listener or a Jewish listener, he takes that, he says, let me go to the next level. He says, this, this logos that you thought I was just kind of this force behind the universe, this word of God that you thought was just a personification, it's a real person. It is a real person. His name is the way, he's, he's real. In fact, he says he is with God, so he's separate from God. And he's not the same as, not just another name for God, he's with God. There's the two of them, you know, he's with God, and yet he is God, he's the same. And so, so John begins to unfold this mystery for us that the God that we follow is much more complex than we might have first thought at first glance. Uh, there's this God that we follow is multidimensional. Um, and he begins to unpack this. And so, so it's almost like in the Old Testament, for those 2,000 years, it took 2,000 years for him to drive home this one central truth, the human race, that there's only one God. It took 2,000 years for Israel to, to, get, to get that. For, for 2,000 years, they had struggled with this many gods. Remember in the Old Testament, they're always worshiping other gods. And, and, and so God, for 2,000 years, drove it in. They finally get it clear. There's only one God. And by the time of Jesus, there was no more idolatry in Israel. Everyone was clear on this. We've learned our lesson. There's only one God. And now John says, now that you're clear on that, now you're really clear on that, it's a little bit more complex. Right? And the truth of the matter is that within this one God, there are three distinct persons who've been living and loving and in relationship and in community from all eternity. There's actually a father, and there's a son, and later on in chapter 14, well, there's a spirit, and, and that these three have been living in love and community at the center of the cosmos, the creation of the cosmos, the, the creator of the cosmos has lived in community from the beginning in, in, in love and in relationship. Now, of course, once you say this, uh, it just raises some huge, you know, huge story, you know, like huge questions. Like, well, uh, how does that happen? You know, how can God be like, like one? And how can God be three? And it's, it's beyond us. It's, it's multidimensional. And I, I was reading the other day or listening to a message the other day where they were saying that scientists have now discovered that there are at least 11 dimensions to reality. Now, now we live in a three-dimensional world. We talk about a fourth or fifth dimension. We talk about time, the dimension of time, and stuff like that. But the scientists have now discovered that there are 11 dimensions of reality that we've discovered. 
And, and so what it would appear is that God is more complex than us. Oh, newsflash. <laughs> right? That, that, that in our world, it's impossible for someone to be one and three. We don't, we don't live in that dimension. But apparently in the dimension where God lives, that it's possible to be one and three. That it is, it's beyond us. And this is, not, this is an important truth because what it means is when a man or a woman decides to follow Jesus, they enter into a relationship with God in which they will experience a father above them, a brother beside them, and the spirit within them to change them. And every Christ follower enters into this relationship with this complex God who is one God and yet somehow a father and a son and the Spirit, all at the same time, three distinct persons. Now, this claim that there's a time and a place that, that God who created all time and space entered into his creation, of course, John's not just making that claim. It's, it's, he's going to be demonstrating that claim based on the life and teaching of Jesus all through the gospel. He's just introducing the concept to us. Jesus actually is the one who makes the claims, and, and so we'll be, we'll be coming to that. And, and this claim is really, like I said earlier, this is one of the core claims that sets Christianity apart from every other religion and every cult in the history of, of, of the world. Um, it, it's, this is a unique claim. No one else makes this claim, that there was a time and a place when the God of creation became part of that creation. No one makes this claim. It's a unique claim. Like there in your note sheet, I have a quote from Philip Yancey. And he wrote a great book called The Jesus I Never Knew, which I really recommend. But he says that, Jesus' audacious claims about himself pose what may be the central problem of all history, the dividing point between Christianity and all other religions. And, and I would throw in here, this would include cults in here too, they, you know, the Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism or things, they'll always have a different view of who Jesus is. Um, although Muslims and increasingly uh, Jews respect Jesus as a great teacher and a prophet, no Muslim can imagine Muhammad claiming to be Allah any more than a Jew can imagine Moses claiming to be Yahweh. You see, that's what we have. We've got Jesus claiming to be Yahweh. Likewise, Hindus believe in many incarnations, but not one incarnation, while Buddhists have no categories in which to conceive of a sovereign God becoming a human being. And so this is the first claim. There was a time and a place when God came to planet Earth. Right? Number two. The second big claim is that God is like Jesus. This is the second big picture truth that we need to catch here, that God is like Jesus. And, of course, this follows out of the first point, but it's, it's something that John focuses on. He wants us to catch this, that in Jesus, God was communicating to the human race. That's why his name is the Word, uh, Jesus is God's communication to the human race. He's his message. And one of the things he's communicating is what God is really like, you see? Like in the past, in the Old Testament, God had, had, had shared a lot of truth about it. He spoke through Moses. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through kings and queens and priests. He spoke, he spoke through uh, uh, dreams, and he spoke through visions, and he spoke through words, and he spoke a lot of different ways. But in Jesus, it's the final revelation of God. Like, like this is who I am. It, he is the word. Like, here I am. And so there in your note sheet, you have a verse from Hebrews chapter 11. 
where the writer of the Hebrews says, this is in the past, like talking in the Old Testament, uh, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, talking about the time after Jesus came, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And so Jesus is, is the word of God. He's, he's communicating who God is. And this is what John is saying in verse 18 of chapter 1. I want to take some time to look at that. We looked at John 1.1. 1, 1. Let's look at John 1.18, another key verse. One eighteen. now no one has ever seen God. That's an axiomatic uh, teaching in Scripture. Um, no one's ever seen God in all his fullness. But God the one and only, talking about this word, the God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him what? No, he has made him what? No, are you catching this? What he's saying is that we no longer have to wonder what God is like because Jesus came to make him known. How does God think? How does God feel? How does God respond? What's his opinion? You see, he says, the way Jesus has come to reveal that. In the past, God has spoken through Moses and different things, his partial ways, but now, these last times, he's spoken through his son. We no longer have to wonder. And John says, and here's the good news. If God is like Jesus, here's what we learn. Two words. He says, if I have to summarize everything about God, if I have to summarize my experience with Jesus, two words come to mind. The first word is the word grace. And the second word is the word truth. He says, I wrap it all up. Here's what we learn about God. He's a God of grace. He's a God of truth. You see? And that's what he's going to be unpacking for us in the whole book of John. We're going to be looking at this God. What happens when God moves into the neighborhood? What happens when God comes into town? If God were to become a human being, what would he be like? We don't have to wonder. He's like Jesus. You see? And we'll come back to that in a couple minutes. Now, number three, the third claim he makes is that he came to give us life. So the word became flesh. He dwelt, but why did he come? Why did he move so close? Why did he become a human being? Because he wanted to give us life as it's meant to be lived. That's why. Um, let's see what he says. We're going to look at verse 14, another key verse. Kind of three key verses, you know, one and 18 and 14. Um, 14, so the word became flesh. John's first thing he wants us to understand is that Jesus really became a true human being. And he puts it as graphically as possible. He could say he became a human being. He could have said he became a man. He gets as graphic down and dirty as he can. He became flesh, flesh and blood. There's a lot of evidence that uh, during John's time, there was a false teaching that was surfacing and infiltrating some churches. It was called docetism. It was a form of what we now call Gnosticism. Uh, I'm not going to go into all that, but you may have heard like Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas that are getting a lot of press. They're Gnostic Gospels. It was a, a late, it was a second century development, kind of where Greek thought and Christianity uh, synergized and created this new thing called Gnosticism. And, and one of the basic ideas in Gnosticism is that God is all spirit. And that the, anything material, the material world, anything material is evil. And, and so God, who's all spirit, he didn't create this material world. Some other, um, other beings created this world. And so God could never become a human being that would defile him. 
because, because the material world is, is evil by nature. And so the teaching was is that when Jesus came, he didn't really take on a human body what defiled him. He only looked like he took on a human body. And there's all kinds of reasons why they were teaching this and where it all led. But the important thing is, is that this was happening in John's time, and so he picks up the banner and he says, no, 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 we were there. He was flesh. Man, I touched him. We ate together. You know, he got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He bled. He suffered. He died. He was fully human. This word who was fully God, he was also fully human. Okay, so the word became flesh, and then the next word, and he dwelt among us. Um, interesting word. In the Greek, what it liter literally says is he tabernacled amongst us. For those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you'll, you'll remember that phrase. When the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, God said, I want to move in with the people. And the people all live in tents. And so, Moses, I want you to build me a tent that I can move in and dwell with the people. I want to come close. I want them to see my glory. I want to have a relationship. I want to dwell. So build me this tent. We'll call it the tabernacle. My tent will be right in the center of the 12 tribes, three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the I want to be right in the middle of the people because I want relationship with them. And so when John says the word became flesh, he goes back and picks up this image and he says the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. We live in tents of bodies. He took on a human body and he came close so that we could see his glory. You see? And that's what he says in 114. The word became flesh, he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. But the question is, why did God come close? Why did he take on a body? Why did he become flesh? Why did he dwell? What's the point? And John says the point is he came to give us a new life. And if you look at verse 12, he says, Yet to those who received him when he came into this world, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. To become what? Children of God. A whole new relationship. A whole new life. The DNA of Jesus being put into our life. The Holy Spirit coming in, changing us from the news. Well, a whole new relationship with God that will go on forever, but a change at the core of our being that we'll read about in John chapter 3 uh, in a few months or years when we get there. Um, that this, this new life, the life of God, brought into our life where we're transformed for eternity, eternal life. We talked about last week. And that's what this book's about. The word became flesh and he tabernacled in our midst. Why? So that we might have life. And this becomes the big theme in the Gospel of John. And we'll see it over and over again. In chapter 3, Jesus will talk to us about what it takes to be born again and receive new life. In chapter 4, Jesus will come to us and talk and says, are you thirsty in life? Let me give you the water of life. In chapter 5, he will say, hey, you all are dead naturally. I have life in myself. If you believe in me, you will cross over. In that moment in time, you will cross over from death into life. And at the end of time, I will raise you up with my life. And in chapter 6, he will say, Come to me and I will give you the bread of life. And in chapter 7, he says, if you believe in me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
And in chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And I have come that my sheep might have life and have it more abundantly. And in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the the life. You see, it's all about life. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst. Why? So that we could have life. A whole new life. Life as it's meant to be lived. Life that goes on forever. The life of God coming into us. This is what he says in John chapter 1. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. That's why he came. To give us life. So these are the three big claims. In his opening statement, John is making his case. He says three big claims. There was a time and place when God came. Secondly, because he came, we know what God is like. Third, the reason he came is so that we could enter into life. Okay, that's the intro. That's the summary. That's his opening statement. Now, for us, before we leave, some implications for our life. Why don't you turn the page over? Three questions. (laughs) The prologue, what's it all mean to us? Okay, first question I have for you is who is Jesus to you? This is the first question. I hope you've picked this up today. That, Like when I ask the question, when you think of Jesus, who comes to mind? I can pretty much guarantee you that whoever it is, he's way too small. <laughs> Have you picked it up today? We're talking creator. the I, You know, who is Jesus to you? When you pray to Jesus, when you ask Jesus for help at your job, when you're going through a hard time financially, you're helping Jesus. Who is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Um, there's a great story. The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis and, and, the, and the Prince Caspian. Great, great story. You know, the four kids get pulled out of uh, World War II uh, time, England. They, they enter into the magical world of Narnia. And when they're there, they, they meet the, the great lion, Aslan, the Christ figure, the, the son of the emperor over the sea. And, of course, they have many adventures in and out of Narnia. They get, they get pulled there sometimes. And so the youngest uh, of the four children, Lucy, sh- she enters back into Narnia and Prince Caspian and is going through some difficult times. And she hasn't seen Aslan yet. She's seen him on previous journeys but never seen this journey yet. And so one day she turns a corner and there's Aslan and he just looks huge to her. He's so much bigger than the last time she came to Narnia. And so she says, Aslan, you're so big. You're so big. Are you just older? And he said, no, child, you are older. And every year you grow, I will get bigger. (laughs) And this is how it should be for us as Christ followers. Every year you walk with Jesus Jesus should get bigger to you. Not because he's older, but because you're older. And your capacity to understand this is growing. One of the the men who really understands this is the Apostle Paul. I I put there his view of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 on your note sheet from the the Living Bible, actually New Living Translation. And it goes like this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything else was created, and he's supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities of the unseen world. 
Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. You do understand this. There is really no such thing as laws of nature. There is Jesus holding it all together. He is the law of nature. We just call it a law of nature because it always happens. <laughs> this is what happens. We call it a law. There's not some law out there. It's Jesus making it happen. You see? And can you see, it just like expands our minds. He's so big, we can't even begin to understand who he is. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Or look at Brendan Manning. He writes a book called Ruthless Trust, talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the power and the wisdom and the holiness of God Almighty. He is creatively present 264 trillion miles from earth on the star Upsilon Andromeda. In other words, he fills the universe. No thought can contain him. No word can express him. He transcends all human concepts, considerations, and expectations. He is the, the beyond in our midst, and though in our midst still beyond anything we can intellectualize or imagine, Jesus Christ will always be a scandal to the murky, immodest theory-making of the intelligentsia because he cannot be comprehended by the rational, scientific, and finite mind. Are you with me? He is bigger. How big is your Jesus? And in this gospel, John is going to begin to take us on a journey and say, let's talk about this God, this word who became flesh. Let's watch him in action. Let's experience his glory. And let's learn to worship him in new ways. See, see that every year our, our Jesus should get bigger and every year our worship should get deeper. Because when you see something amazing, like, like you go to Half Dome and you see it, it's like something makes you want to worship, right? It's amazing. Well, this is the maker of amazing we're talking about. Right? This is the source of amazing. And so every year our worship should go deeper. Now, number two, the second question is what is God really like? And I'm talking about in your life. Like when, when you think of God, like what's God really like? Who is God to you? You know, we, we all have opinions about who God is, right? We've got our opinions. Um, throughout the history of the world, everyone's having an opinion about who God is. Um, all the major religions of the world have an opinion about who God is, what he's like. But what John is saying here is that, that we don't have to wonder what God is like anymore. God is like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, he's like Jesus. And it's so important for us as Christ followers, if we're going to grow up spiritually, that we're always comparing our view of God with Jesus and saying, does it fit or not? Because the fact is, we all have crazy ideas about God, don't we? Yeah, you, you know that. I mean, at times in your life, oh, I don't think God loves me anymore. Well, you know, it's like a crazy idea. You know, it's like, like what, we all have these crazy ideas about who God is, how he feels or thinks or whatever. And, and so sometimes they came from our upbringing. Sometimes we fit, we've come up with them on our own. Sometimes they come from the media. Sometimes they, they come from uh, 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 like our parents or family. Or, we all have these crazy ideas. And the only way for us to grow spiritually is to constantly take our image of God and compare it and run it through the grid of Jesus and say, is this really true? There's a great uh, quote there by Brennan Manning again from his book, Abba's Child. Uh, you know, when we begin to discover who God is through Jesus, there's great freedom in this. It frees us up from our misconceptions. It frees us to live life as it's meant to be lived. He writes there, when Jesus 
said that whoever saw him saw the, saw the Father. That's in John 14. We'll get there in a few years. Uh, his hearers were shocked beyond belief. For those of us who've heard these words so often, they have lost their shock value. Yet they contain the power to shatter all our projections and false images of God. Jesus affirmed that he was the incarnation of the Father's feelings and attitudes towards humankind. God is not other than he is seen in the person of Jesus. Thus Karl Rahner's phrase, Karl Rahner's famous theologian, Jesus is the human face of God. And so as we go through this story, we're going to see who God is by seeing who Jesus is. Like, how does God respond to a respected religious leader? How does God respond to a woman at the other end of the social spectrum kind of shacking up with her boyfriend? How does God respond to religious leaders of his day? How does he answer some of the major issues of life? We're going to see exactly who God is through the life of Jesus. Now, here's the question, the challenge for you. As we go through this, Jesus is going to challenge you sometimes because I can promise you that at times Jesus will be more liberal than you are on some issues. And I can promise you there'll be some issues he's more conservative than you are. So the question is, as we study the life of Jesus, will you alter your image of God to fit Jesus? Or will you alter Jesus to finish to make your image of God make sense. See? So we're going to do one of the two. We're going to be presented with Jesus, and we're going to reshape our view of God based on Jesus, or we're going to reshape our view of Jesus so it fits with our view of God. So the question is, are you willing to subject your opinions about God to the person of Jesus? Powerful question. Number three. The third question is, are you ready to follow We, we've seen today the central claim of John. This is a time and place where God came to time and space. The word became flesh so that we could have life. But I hope you caught this, that it's not automatic. Not everyone gets the life. In fact, when Jesus first came, most people rejected him and didn't get the life. And so what we're going to have is Jesus is going to walk through our midst here at Rocky Peak and he says, this is the way to life. I've come to give you life. I've come to point out the path to life. And there's sometimes you're not going to like what he says. And there's sometimes it's going to be disagree with your opinions of the path to life. And the question is, when your opinions on how to get the most out of life conflict with Jesus' teaching about here's how to get the most out of life, who do you follow? You see, it's not automatic. We don't get the life just because we come to church. We don't get the life because we read the Bible. We get the life because we receive Jesus as creator and God, our leader and our teacher. And as we submit our opinions on how to get the most out of life to his opinion on how to get the most, that's when we encounter life. And how we respond to Jesus and his teaching, it determines not only our eternal destiny, it also determines our temporal destiny, life in the future and life in the present. And that's the journey we're going to be taking in this book. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this amazing passage of Scripture. It is so high and up there that we can, even standing on tiptoes, barely even see the top. It's like a Mount Everest shrouded in clouds that we know the top is up there somehow, but we can't even get there. 
God, I know for me personally, these truths are just so huge. I, I can't even begin to understand and begin to fathom. But at least what I can do is let you know I don't get it. Please help me get it. I want my picture of Jesus to be bigger. And I want to follow him. I want that life, God. And so we pray for that as a church. We pray that this will not be an academic exercise for us, that this will not be a religious duty, that we will come to, to be impacted, we will come to encounter, we will come to be changed, we will come to meet with him. And we pray that you would show us his glory, full of grace and truth every week as we come. You would take the scales off our eyes that Jesus would get bigger to us. And that as we grow older, he would get bigger and that our Jesus would grow and we would begin to understand this Jesus who's rescued and saved us is the God, the creator of the cosmos that holds all things together with the word of his power. While our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus and yet you sense today is the day, you know what I'm talking about. There is something inside you right now that's crying out, you want this, God. You want this, Jesus. You want this new life. You can't even put words on it. You might be able to explain, but there's something inside of you that today, in a way that you can't even explain, you have crossed the line. You've come to believe. You've come to see who he is. You, you knew he was a person before, but today you've crossed the line and you've understood who Jesus is and today you want to follow him, and today you want to come into new life, and you want this life, if that's who you are today, I'm gonna give you a chance right now. I'm gonna pray a simple prayer and asking him to come into your life, that you would receive him and believe in him. And if it expresses the desire of your heart, I ask you to pray along with me, either under your breath or just in your mind and heart, and he will hear and he will come in. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I do believe in you. I ask you to forgive me for all my rebellion in the past. I ask you to cleanse me of my sin. I ask you to give me new life and cause me to be born again by your spirit. I pray that you'll teach me how to follow you and that you'll save a spot in the next life for me. Now, while our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, if you just prayed that prayer, I need to know about it. I'd like you to write me a note on a registration card. We'll be turning in just a minute with our offering. Just write me a note. Say, Mike, I prayed the prayer. I asked Jesus into my life. Something like that. I know what you'll mean. And, and when I get that, I'll send you a letter with some next steps in your new relationship with Jesus in your Bible. And on top of that, if you're serious about following Jesus, the very first step is baptism. It's the way you say goodbye to the old life and hello to the new. And and so we're doing that in a couple weeks. And so if you're serious about this, when you write me the note, we'll contact you and schedule the service for you to be baptized where you publicly say, I believe, and I'm leaving my old life, and I'm following. Lord, we come as a church now, and we pray that you would open our eyes to see who Jesus is, that our worship might go deep and deeper than it's ever been. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we bring our